If you've got a Bible then, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Uh, this Sunday is the second Sunday in Advent. It's uh, the first Sunday in our sermon series, our Advent sermon series. But officially, as the church calendar goes, this is the second Sunday in Advent. Advent being these four weeks that the church just slows down and reflects looks back to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, the promised Messiah who came, who lived, who died, who resurrected, who is ascended and is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. Now we just slow down for four weeks, just for a month through December. And we remember, we remember the waiting, that season of waiting, waiting on the Lord to come, holding on to his promises with hope that he is coming. And, and we remember that in different ways. Some of us have advent calendars, Anyone? Pop your hand up. Don't be embarrassed. That's okay. Your rocks, friends. Yeah, a few of us have advent calendars. We've got an advent cal- uh, candle this year, extortionately priced by John Lewis. Like, it is just a candle with numbers on it. And how will they get away with selling it to mugs like us? I don't know. But we, uh, we remember Advent. And it's just this deliberate slowing down. Just slowing down and considering and placing ourselves in a place of waiting. This place of anticipation. And all of us know what it is to wait and to wait for something that we haven't got yet. Uh, every now and again, it's a bit of a treat. In our house, we order off delivery or Just Eat or one of those apps. And if you've ever had the pleasure or the mispleasure of ordering off, not often, don't judge us. I know some of your faces there are thinking, ah, oh, Neil, I didn't think you were that guy. But, but we are those people, so that's fine. And it's just, it's irregular, it's not a habit. Anyway, when we do order off it, we, we know what it is to wait. Like if you've used one of those apps, you know what happens. You kind of look through the different restaurants and we're so indecisive. Even that's a season of waiting for me. I'm like, come on, let's just, let's just choose somewhere. I'll, I'll eat anywhere, I don't mind. But once we manage to choose somewhere, we select the restaurant, we put the order in. And then you can see it on the app. Like, you know what I'm talking about? I'm not on my own here, am I? You can see it on the app. It goes to the restaurant and uh, the app tells you they're preparing your food and there's that, just that waiting, that anticipation. And then, you know, sometimes it'll tell you how long it's going to be. And we look at the, the clock and we think, how long? Like an hour, an hour and a quarter. I'm not willing to wait that long. But we wait and we sit until we see those six words. Your food is on its way. Yeah, you, you know what I mean? And then it comes and you can track the, the guy or the girl on her bike or her moped making her way through the street. And you think, why has she gone down that road? Like, no, she could be, should be coming this way. And then you can, in real time, see her coming down the street. And then the food eventually arrives. And the wait is over. The anticipation is over. And we know what it is to have that sense of, all right, that's something a little bit silly. But we know what it is to have that sense of waiting for something and longing for something to come. And it might be in the insignificant everyday things like fast food, or it might be in the significant moments in life. That anticipation, that waiting, maybe waiting for, for the payday balance to take you from in the red to in the black. Or maybe it's waiting for that phone call after the job interview. Or maybe it's waiting for the diagnosis from the doctor. Or the interest rates to finally slow down and start creeping down instead of up. We all know what it is to wait, and waiting is one of those shared human experiences that can often be hard. Because what happens if what we're waiting for doesn't arrive? 
Or what happens if what you're waiting for, when you receive it, it isn't what you expected it to be? Or what happens if time runs out? We know what it feels like to wait. And we know often the disappointment that it feels to wait. And the frustration that we feel to wait. We all know what it is to wait. And when it comes to the things of God, the things that really matter, we have two ways to wait, really. We can either wait with fear or we can wait with hope. And the season of Advent slows us down deliberately to help us to see that God's people are people who wait with hope. And we're not talking about the insignificant things here. We're talking about the things that have real meaning, like the big issues in life. Like as God's people, we know that we live in a broken world, right? And we live in broken bodies and we fight against sin every day. I'm talking about those types of things, waiting on the Lord to come and free us and deliver us and liberate us from our broken bodies, from the brokenness of the world, from this daily contention with sin, waiting on the Lord to come and deliver us from those things. And in those seasons, we have, we have two ways of waiting. Either we wait with fear or we wait with hope. And over the next three weeks, we're going to drill down deeper into what it means to wait with hope. And this afternoon, we're going to see as we just walk through Matthew chapter one, that for God's people, waiting with hope looks like waiting, holding on to the promises of a faithful God. Holding on to the promises of a faithful God. So let's read Matthew chapter one together. If you know me and you know um, the bits of the Bible that I like, you know that I like genealogies. These are the the chapters that often we skim through, you know, when we're doing Bible in the air or whatever, we hit a genealogy and we're like, we'll just give up now. I love genealogies and I love them that much and I hope you love them that much that you're going to bear with me through this mountain of names that I'm going to try my best to pronounce and probably get lots of them wrong. But I love it that much. I'm going to read it anyway. But here, embedded in these lists of names, God is speaking to us. God is teaching us. And he is teaching us what it is to hope, holding on to the promises of a faithful God. Okay, let's go. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab. And I knew it was going to be that one. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Take a breath. 
And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Even in this list of names, which may sound labored, we know that this is your truth and your word to us today. We pray in confidence that you would speak to us, that you would teach us. We pray in confidence that this is your word, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would come and change us. Help us this afternoon to know what it is to wait, to wait with, with true hope to hold onto you, to see that you are a faithful God, faithful to all of your promises. So help us to wait with confidence. And we ask this in your son's name and for his glory. Amen. Whew, got there. There we go. I'm sure some of those I absolutely butchered, but you'll never know and I'll never know. So there we go. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, these people, 14 generations, and then another 14 generations, and another 14 generations. These people waited. They knew what it was to wait. Throughout the Old Testament, God promised that he would send his people a savior, one who would come and free them and release them and liberate them from, from slavery to Satan's sin and death, the great enemies that have plagued humanity all the way from our rebellion in Eden. God promised to send a saviour and God's people, all of these generations, waited. And God gave his people his word. Your saviour is on his way. He's coming. Your saviour is on his way. And he would drop in promises to his people like we just read there. A promise from Isaiah 7.14 that Matthew quotes. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. God promises your Savior is on his way. I'm sending him. He's going to come, and he's going to be and live amongst you. And so God's people waited. They waited with hope. 
for the promise of God, the coming of his son. And all the while their struggle with Satan, sin and death continued. But yet they waited. They waited with hope. They waited holding on to the promise of a faithful God. Every now and again in the Old Testament, as God's people wait, you hear this, you hear this cry go up. In the midst of the waiting, they cry, how long, O Lord? How long? They wait, holding on to the promises of a faithful God, but they still come to God and say, how long? Like, how much longer are we going to have to wait? Like, you haven't forgotten this about us, have you, Lord? How much longer until you receive the promise? And, and we do the same. We know what it feels like. We know what it feels like to know that God is for us, to know that he is faithful, to hold on to his promises, but then to still ask the question, how long? How long am I going to battle with this sin? How long until you come and make all of this new? How long until we see an end to the brokenness in humanity? We feel the aches and pains in our aging bodies and we cry out, how long, Lord? We feel that daily battle with sin that rages in us and we ask, how long, Lord? We see the violence in our city and we ask, how long, Lord? The increasing distortion of sexuality in our culture, how long, Lord? The devaluation of life with the elderly and the unborn, how long, Lord? The dark cloud of mental health, how long, Lord? We know what it is to wait, folks. We know what it is to cry out, how long, Lord? But we're not alone. All the way through scripture, we see God's people waiting and holding on to the promise of a faithful God in the midst of their waiting. In the midst of the how long they hold on to the promise of a faithful God. And we see them here in Matthew's genealogy. Look back at verse two, right at the start, we see Abraham. He's the one who starts it all off. And and Abraham knew about waiting. God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is 75. And God says to Abraham, through you, I'm going to create a great nation. Let me just say that again. 75, that's how old he was. Like biology was the same then as it is now. He knew what it was to wait because even at 75, he had to wait 24 years until Isaac, his firstborn son, was born. Abraham knew what it was to wait. And yet he waited with hope, holding on to the promise of a faithful God. And then Isaac, we see in verse 2, Abraham's son. Isaac knew what it was to wait to. Isaac loved Rebekah. He set his eyes on, on Rebekah and, and he wanted to take Rebekah as his wife, but he had to wait. He waited four years to marry her. And then it was another 20 years for Isaac and Rebekah to have to wait until they had their child. And in verse 5, we have Ruth, one of my favourites. Ruth, this faithful Moabite woman who waited who lost their husband but served faithfully her her mother-in-law Naomi and waited for her Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, to ask for her marriage. Ruth Ruth waited with hope, holding on to the promises of a faithful God. And then in verse 6, we have David. Ruth was the great-grandmother of David. David knew what it was to wait. At the age of 13, the prophet Samuel comes to David and says, you're going to be king over Israel. And yet he waits 17 years to become king. David waited with hope, holding on to the promise of a faithful God. And then in verse 11, 
of Matthew chapter 1, we see Matthew, Matthew tells us about Israel being carried away to Babylon in exile. And they waited in Babylon for 70 years. Israel waited with hope, holding on to the promise of a faithful God. A promise that he was going to free them, that he was going to bring the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Savior. They waited with hope, holding on to the promise of a faithful God. And actually in Luke's uh, account of, of the birth of Jesus, we read of two others who waited. Simeon and Anna. Simeon and Anna were, were these were a godly man and a godly woman who were, were told were full of the Spirit. And they would go to the temple every day. And they would, they would cry out to God on behalf of Israel. They would come and plead with God, send your promised Savior, send him. How long, Lord? Like, how long are we going to have to wait? And every day, day after day, they came and they prayed and they fasted and they sought the Lord and they interceded on behalf of God's people that God would send his promised Messiah. And then one day, Mary and Joseph walk in through the doors of the temple with a baby in their arms. And Simeon takes that child and holds it and looks at his face. And he knows that his waiting is over. As he sees the promised Christ in his arms, he knows the waiting is over. Simeon and Anna waited with hope, holding on to the promises of a faithful God. And this Advent season is a perpetual reminder of how we can do the same. Of how we can wait with hope, holding on to the promise of a faithful God. We said it before, there are two ways for us to wait, folks. We can either wait with fear or we can wait with hope, holding on to the promises of a faithful God. And what's that look like? Well, I want to just throw three things out to us this afternoon. Three ways in which we can do that. Three ways in which we can tangibly wait with hope, holding on to the promise of a faithful God. And the first way is this. Know your place. I'm not saying that in a rude way. I'm saying it in an encouraging way. Know your place. You ever seen that program on the BBC, um, Who Do You Think You Are? And they get celebrities. Anyone seen it? They get celebrities. So here's what they do if you've not seen it. They'll get someone who's famous and they'll trace their family tree. And they'll go through each of the generations as far as they can, can go back and, and see if there's anything interest, interesting in there, like anyone peculiar or spectacular. And for the most part, it's just ordinary people in each generation. And every now and again, you'll get someone who's, who's maybe a little bit famous in in their family tree. The really interesting ones are when they stumble across someone who is terrible, like has been a real villain in the past, like a, like a rogue general or like a, a, you know, a, a famous criminal from the past or something like that. And just seeing these celebrities having to walk through the awkwardness of knowing that someone that they, they you know, no connection with, but this somebody is part of their family tree. It's quite uh, just, uh, uh, what's the word, cathartic to watch just them go through the pain in that moment. When you think of Jesus' family tree here, you read in Matthew chapter 1. In almost every generation, there is someone who has a dark past. Someone who's shady. Like you look through the list of people here who find it into Jesus' family tree. You've got a murderer. You've got a, an addict. You've got liars. You've got an adulterer. You've got a sex worker. And don't forget who was writing what we've just read as well, Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector before he followed Jesus. Matthew was hated by society. 
He was part of a, a corrupted, a, a corrupted, a, a corrupt institution. Folks, we can come to Jesus and we can come into the life of God's people. And we can, we can kind of pull ourselves away as we look at the lives of other people and we think, oh, they've got it all together. Like, like I'm just a little bit too messy. Look at who is found as we walk through this genealogy here. And men and women, by the way, not all of them, but men and women who are included of that list of brokenness and shady past, men and women of faith. These lives are messy, folks. Like you might have a messy life, but these lives are really messy. This is one of the reasons why, why we can see that Christianity is true because we just wouldn't write it this way. If we were writing about the coming king who was going to save the world, we wouldn't include these names in Jesus' genealogy. But they're in there. And this list is important. Because the promise of God to save his people, that promise is only for his people. The promise of God to save his people isn't for everyone, folks. That is just for his people. And we can easily convince ourselves that we are too busted up, we are too broken, we are too shady, we are too sinful for God to want us in his family. But read who made it in. And read down in verse 21 of chapter 1. Jesus, the Son of God, came to save his people from their sins. If you have faith in Jesus, that's who you are. You're a saved sinner. It doesn't matter what's happened in your past. It doesn't even matter what's going on now in your present or what's to come in your future. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a saved sinner. You're no longer outside of the family of God. You're no longer under the judgment of God. You've been brought in, adopted as his child. And if God was faithful to save guilty sinners like these, he can save guilty sinners like us. And if you're not a Christian, you need to hear that. If you are a Christian, you need to believe that. And know your place as a child of God. A saved sinner which makes you a child of God. Someone who owns the promises of God. So know who you are. You are a recipient of the promises of a faithful God. So they are yours to hold on to. Don't think that you are too messed up, too broken, too sinful, too shady. No, this list tells you that you are amongst good company. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has saved you from your sin. You are his child and his promises belong to you. So know your place. And secondly, hold on to God. Hold on to God. So often we can get so consumed in our lives that we forget that we're part of something much bigger. And actually, when we default to fear in the midst of waiting... When everything seems to be falling around us and and we seem to just be battling with that same sin again or battling with the brokenness of the world or the brokenness in our bodies. When we find ourselves in that place and we're waiting on the Lord and we need him to come and help us and come and save us and come and liberate us. In those moments when we default to fear, it's most often because we're thinking that it's up to us to fix it. Like, I need to fix this issue with sin. I need to fix the brokenness that I see in front of me. I need to fix the brokenness that I feel around us. And what we need in those moments is a reminder of our weakness and a reminder of God's power. Think back to, as we saw in the first few verses, the man who starts off this genealogy, Abraham. Abraham is 75 years old. God comes and gives him that promise. Through you, I'm going to make a great nation. 
And remember what God does in the moment, if you know the story back in Genesis chapter 12, where does, where does God make Abraham look in that moment? To the sky. And in the sky, he sees a multitude of stars. And God says, more than the stars you can see in the heaven, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring about this nation. I'm going to make you more descendants than you can see with your eyes. And in that moment, God has shown him something in terms of numerically how big this promise is going to be. But he's also, I think, shown him just the size of Abraham compared to the size of God. Like frail old 75-year-old Abraham, just look. Look up and see how powerful I am. Look up and see who these promises are, are ultimately down to. It's me, it's not you. And I love for Abraham, like throughout, throughout his days, like he's never more than 12 hours away from being reminded of God's power and his frailty. As soon as the sun sets and he sees those stars in the skies, he's reminded of the promise of God and he's reminded of the power of God and his weakness. That is a good place to be, folks. If you're defaulting to fear in the midst of waiting while there's brokenness around you, you need to be reminded that you are weak and God is strong. And where do we look to when we need that reminder? We don't need to look to the stars as, as glorious as they are and as much as they teach us about the power and the majesty and the splendor of God. Where do we look to be reminded of our weakness and his power? The cross. As we look to the cross, we see that we are no match for sin. As we look to the cross, we see the power of God displayed through the humility of Jesus Christ. As we look to God, we see the faithfulness of God to send his son to die for our sin. As we look to the cross, we see that Satan's sin and death are crushed. They are destroyed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. As we look to the cross, we see that we are weak and we are feeble. But God is powerful and he is strong. And in his strength, that's where we want to find ourselves. We hold on to God, folks, if we are defaulting to fear. And finally, trust in his ways. We trust in his ways. We know our place as a child of God. These are our promises. We hold on to God. We see his greatness. We see our weakness and we trust in his ways. Look at verse 18 again of Matthew 1. Let me just read it again. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with the child from the Holy Spirit. Now imagine the conversation when Mary goes back to Joseph and tells her what's happened. Like it's just wild, isn't it? Just to think like, like how petrified Mary must have been, how confused Joseph must have been. Joseph, I'm pregnant, but I'm not pregnant by another man. The Holy Spirit has given me this child. Like that's just wild to think, like how would we react to that? And you see Joseph's reaction in verse 19. Uh, we read this, her husband Joseph being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And as we read that, we kind of think, Okay, like I understand why he would respond in that way. Joseph receives this news and he comes up with a plan. I'm going to sort this out. This is how it's going to work, Mary. I'm going to, I'm going to protect you from shame. I don't want this to, to bring shame on you, so I'm going to divorce you quietly. I'm going to try and deflect everything that's coming to us and, and control it in that way. And then in verse 20, the angel comes to Joseph and says, Whoa, slow down. Just wait. Trust in God, Joseph. You don't need to take things into your own hands. The angel tells Joseph, God is in control. 
Don't fear. Don't default to fear in the waiting. And in verse 24, we see that Joseph surrenders his plans to God. The angel's plan doesn't really fit in with human wisdom. Like Joseph's plan is much easier. And so for him to lay down his plan and let go, that needs humility and it needs trust. It needs Joseph to trust in the midst of waiting. It needs him to trust that God knows better and his plans are better. In our kitchen at home, we've got this cheesy little glass um, ornament, which Johnny and Nathan bought us. I know that sounds terrible because it was a gift from these guys, but they'll agree. It was about seven or eight years ago. It was one of these Christian bookshop type gifts, you know what I mean? Um, written in um, probably Times New Roman. And it's a, it's a, um, a quote from uh, Proverbs 3 verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And every morning when we come to the kitchen, I see it. It's there to remind me. Neil, wherever you've got plans today, just hold those plans loosely. Wherever you're going to face today, it's not bad to try and find a way through and to work your way through, but just hold that loosely because God might have a better way. Trust in the Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding. Folks, some of us need to do that. As we are waiting, we are trying desperately to take control of the situation. And we think that we know best. And we think that we're wise enough to fix the problem in front of us. And we're wise enough to make a way through whatever's coming at us in the next few weeks and the next few months. And the Lord would say to you, just hold on to those things lightly. And trust in me. With all your heart. And lean on me. Not on your own understanding. Folks, I'm sure there is a lot of uncertainty and a lot of angst amongst us about what lies ahead. And you might be sitting in that place of waiting now. Maybe you're like the saints in the Old Testament where you're throwing up that cry, how long, Lord? How long until you deliver me from this sin? How long until you deliver me from this brokenness? How long until I see that promise fulfilled? How long until you come back? What does it look like for God's people to wait with hope? Know your place. Know that you are a son or a daughter of the living God. And his promises are your promises. Hold on tightly to him. Knowing that he is faithful. He has always been faithful and he always will be faithful. And he owns those promises. And so he will see them through. And trust in his plans. Hold lightly to your plans. Hold lightly to your wisdom. And hold firmly to his plans. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. Let's pray. Father, we want to be people who hope in the waiting. There's so much that we want, good things that we want, so much healing that we want to see, so much deliverance that we long for, so much freedom and liberation from the brokenness that we experience. But we want to be able to be people who hope. (coughs) in the midst of the waiting. 
So, Father, remind us of who we are. We often forget or we don't believe that we're worthy, that we're too sinful, we're too messed up, we're too broken for you to show an interest in us, that we're too far gone for you to help us. So show us, show your people that we are who you say we are. We are your sons and your daughters. And these promises are ours. Help us to hold on to them. Lead us to truth. Help us to see that our hope for the future isn't found in our own accomplishments, in our own ability, in our own strength, in our own wisdom, but it's found in you. And give us courage where we need to, to let go. Where we are stepping out of a place of faith and trying to forge our own way and our own strength. Help us to let go of those things and hold on tightly to you. Father, we need you. We have no hope without you. And so where there is struggle, where there is fear in this room this afternoon, pray that you would bring a hope that only comes from you. Hope that is ultimately found in and through a relationship with your son, Jesus. And so direct our gaze to him. Fill our hearts with, with faith in him. Stare our affections for him. And give us hope in his name. And it's for his glory that we ask.